Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Sean. As an Eastern Border listener, you must have good taste in fine audio content. Kristaps also tells me that many of you are IT nerds, much as myself. If you're looking for something new, then why not check out my podcast? It's called Advent of Computing, and it covers the history and development of computing technology. It's available anywhere fine podcasts can be downloaded. And don't worry, happiness is also mandatory over on my feed. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. And today's been a very busy day here in Kiev. For this, I have an extremely special guest. I would like to call him uh, a friend of mine. Met him in person once. He's also my mentor, as I view him. I have a small shrine of him in, in the background somewhere over there. And uh, he's also the reason why I even have this show and why I've made this far. Well, hi, Dan. Welcome on our show. What is this, the third time at this point? Fourth? I don't know. Yes, and we and we are friends. You don't have to worry about that. We've known each other now for years, and we have conversations outside these conversations. So that's a friend in my book. Arguments as well. Let's not forget. No, sure. The weirdest part is that um, last time we spoke, it was just before the shooting war had started, and uh, it was on Twitter. And then we had a conversation, and I hadn't slept, and we spoke for an hour on Skype, and I forgot to record it. And what ended up happening is that I warned people that we've had this conversation and no one believed me at all until you released your episode of Common Sense and then you referred to this mysterious friend who lives next to Russia. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You might have misunderstood that. You're not my only mysterious friend who lives next to Russia. Yeah, Dan, but I understand my talking points. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the thing is, I've been here and I've seen all sorts of terrible things happen. And yeah, I told you that I'd be in Kiev and here I am. I went here through Odessa, which is pretty nice. But um, that first question that I'd like to ask you, during this time, I've had a lot of conversations with other podcasters and a lot of people from the United States. And a lot of them just uh, blatantly refuse to believe me or facts or whatever. And, and I, I just, I don't know how to change people's minds. They look at their position and they use every possible means to switch the facts off, so to speak. Basically, everything their side says is a fact and, and should be trusted. And everything the other side says is automatically thrown away. And uh, well, you have more experience with this than I do. How do I deal with this? How do I get the message through? Because currently getting out the message that you should probably be sending help to Ukraine is, is very important here and that, you know, we must come to a conclusion. 
Well, listen, amigo, that is hardly, I mean, that's what we're dealing with across the entire political spectrum about everything. So this Ukraine situation is just, this is the way we're dealing with every other issue, at least in the United States, but this is a global situation, obviously. So the answer to the question is, is this was just about Ukraine and Russia? Uh, I would give one answer, but I think this is just the Ukraine-Russia situation playing into the, the current zeitgeist, which is that Everyone already has their preconceived notions. They fit the facts into the notions afterwards. They don't change. You know, there's a line that's attributed to the economist Keynes, who, who was accused once of flip-flopping, as we say in the United States, on one of his positions. And his comeback was beautiful. He said, when the facts change, I change my opinions. What, pray tell, do you do, sir? And, and that's what's not here right now. So we change the facts to fit the opinions as opposed to the other way around. So I don't have an answer to your question, because if I did, I would apply it across the board to any number of problems and issues. That's just a facet of modern times, this whole phrase I hate, but this whole fake news 21st century reality of ours plays out exactly the way you just described it. I think that's just par for the course. I do want to say I don't feel that way personally. And as I told you before we started recording, I feel like this might be a very strange conversation because I realize I'm the guest on the program, but I'm the one with all the questions because you're the guy on the ground, right? You're the guy who can help me peek through the fog of war right now and get a little better understanding of what things look like on the ground. And I feel a little guilty because I feel like we're risking a little bit of your mental health. Uh, to get us this information, but that's nothing new for war correspondence, of which you have found yourself, haven't you? Yeah, it uh, it just so happens that I am. By accident, almost. This is not my first rodeo, comrade. No, so is this my fault, too? Is any damage that you incur from going, is this my fault, ultimately? Uh, I guess so, yeah, because if I hadn't written those, those blog posts on the old boards about uh, how it was like to serve in the Soviet army, and you literally told me to make a show, and yeah, so here we are. To be honest, to answer your question about this, I think it's also emotional ties, and uh, my listeners know that this war has cost me deeply personally already. Yes, yes. And and to be honest, talking to you, Dan, is is a way how to how I heal myself. But to be fair, once once this all is over and I can just relax, I'm actually just taking my money and going to Texas. I have a lot of beautiful, nice, awesome Texan listeners, and I'm just going to Texas and spending like a month there. I want to try Texas barbecue and and. and do whatever, taking a massive vacation after this. Good. To be honest about your position, it, it kind of suits me as well because I've been making these shows from my perspective and I've been doing them almost daily, four to five shows per week, like each 15 minutes. Look at what pro-Russian side says because I have some sources in, in there and I have sources that uh, other media don't use. But I don't really know what Americans actually want to know about this. So you asking me questions is, well, exactly what I need. An, an intelligent, respectable American journalist uh, asking questions to his fellow on the eastern border about the, the events during this war. It's a watershed moment, really. Well, I hope that I, I, I may not be the average American in terms of the questions. I don't know. But I mean, look, war zones are traditionally tough places for truth, right? We all understand that, you know, truth is the first casualty of war, as is always said. The fog of war is famous. The propaganda during war is legendary. I mean, I, you know, everybody in the United States uses the example of the famous Iraq war, uh, you know, babies in the incubators being thrown out. I mean, so, so people have learned to not necessarily trust information during wartime. And I think that's a smart sort of suspicion to have. The problem is, 
is if you're suspicious of everything, how do you let the actual facts bleed through when they show up? And I think that actually reverts back to your point about, you know, our fake news biases question. Right now, because of, of the strategy part of the war, I mean, what's going on the front lines? Yeah, I'm taking all of that from extremely pro-war sources in Russia. I'm in some Telegram channels. You might not even know what Telegram is. It's a popular alternate social media, which was created to bypass all the restrictions of Facebook and Twitter and all these places. So a lot of people in Russia just sit on Telegram and they, they have a lot of extremely pro-war channels there, which have managed to infiltrate. So when it comes to that, I'm using Russian sources to speak about Russian victories and Russian defeats. Because, hey, who better to trust about what's going on in the war if not the side that you actually don't support? Two questions here. The first one is, you know, I, I've been trying to, to talk about this in the larger sense, but it absolutely applies in this more targeted sense, is how much can we trust that what you're reading is coming from actual people as opposed to farms of propagandists and all that? It's very difficult to know what you're getting. And the other side of the, the equation is, and this is more of a human thing, it would apply in the United States and in many other countries too. When your nation goes to war, there are a lot of people who instantly become very patriotic about it. I think it's almost a knee-jerk reaction. I think it's something governments depend on. There's a famous quote by Hermann Goering from before the Second World War about how easy it is to get the population whipped up in favor of a war when no one really wants a war. So, I mean, I think some of this is standard human behavior and the, the question about telegraph and what you're getting in terms of real opinions, that's a 21st century phenomenon. See, the thing is about Hermann Goring's quote, I'm glad you brought it up. Right now, it hurts Putin. He's whipped up the population there in such a frenzy for war that when something happened in the peace talks, you know, when they actually spoke about how Russian armies should retreat and how maybe there would be peace talks and how some goals have been achieved, Russian government got a lot of flack because they, they had built up Ukraine as this fascist enemy, this thing that should be crushed, that any dealings with Ukraine, because this will probably lead to some peace talks anyway, they're seen as betrayal. He's done it and now he's kind of reaping the rewards of this process, which is interesting to see. Well, but this is what makes something like this so dangerous. I field calls and whatnot from people who will say things like, why is this getting so much coverage? Is it just because these are white people? People weren't covering stories in the Middle East or Africa this way. And I think they have a point and the point that they're trying to make is well taken. But I think there's an element here that they're not paying attention to, which is this is one of those occasions where if things went sideways on us, you could have a nuclear holocaust. And I try to keep my eyes on that situation very carefully. And the reason that it matters is because at a certain point, events move away from human control, right? So we, we think about rational actors being in charge of events. But And you've probably heard me say this on the History Podcast. Sometimes you go from pushing events in the directions you want to as a world leader. And sometimes then inertia and events tend to create a pulling momentum that at a certain point you go from pushing events to having events pull you. And at that point, things become very dangerous. And what you're talking about is, as I think, a case of that where Putin is arranging things and puppet mastering things and in charge of things. And then all of a sudden he finds his options constrained as he moves farther down this, this dark tunnel by the very elements that he himself set up and encouraged, right? He poured gasoline on a fire that he now maybe can't put out as easily as he could have before it started. Does that make sense? Yes, and I, I agree with you here. Putin is severely punishing anyone who even calls it a war. 
I mean, the very fact that Dmitry Peskov, uh, the press secretary of Putin, openly stated in Italian media that Russia has lost quite a lot of soldiers in this war. And, and let's not discuss casualty numbers, because that is one thing that I'm clear, 100% sure, that both sides of this conflict really exaggerate, and, and those are muddled. That's, and that's war anywhere, my friend, right? That's traditional. I mean, you're not going to get real numbers till afterwards. Even the fact that Putin's press secretary called it a war was weird, because they call it a special operation, which should have been over by three days. And that's that's an interesting part, because this whole message about how this should be over by three days, it really trickled down. I was in the, one of the bombed cities yesterday, where the Russians retreated. Well, that's why I told you to look at the pictures before this conversation. And over there, I asked the, those people, well, why were your homes bombed? And, and why didn't things like Bucha happen there? What they responded to me were really stunning, because in Bucha, apparently, they had gone in Bucha after they knew it would be for long. So therefore, they, they were extra cruel. But in this Borodjanka, they had gone in and they were told that, oh, guys, just don't do anything. Just just capture the city, whatever. It's going to be over in three days. And then when it wasn't over in three days, no one knew what to do, like at all. They didn't even have military high command at that point. And, and no one knew what to do at all. So that is why, because of sheer incompetence and because the military personnel didn't know what to do, that is why Borodjanka escaped targeted murders but they were bombed as the Russians retreated. Like they literally bombed civilian buildings. So that was that was weird too. Well, and look, let's throw the history in here a little bit. Russia calling this a special military operation. They did not invent this approach, right? During the Korean War, when that broke out in 1950, the way the United States both avoided having to have Congress declare war and avoided having to look at this as a potential outbreak of the Third World War, they referred to the Korean War for the entire time. And, you know, when you add up the Korean casualties, millions of people died and we called it a police action. I know this. I think I think Putin has done this because he he's learned from this. It's the same thing. And it's the same thing. Also, another thing, uh, according to Russian law, if you're in a war, then you have to report all sorts of things. Right. Casualty numbers have to be made public. Mobilization is in effect. Putin doesn't want mobilization. Putin doesn't want to speak about casualties. Why? Why would he? If he can just declare this a special operation, and then just not do anything of that, you have to look at all these things from a. It's kind of sad that I have to speak on my show about how how war has made me think differently. But I thought I was jaded before. Now I'm extremely cynical. I don't. I, I really hope that light inside me comes back one day. To be honest. Well, it's funny because you're you're mentioning stuff that and and you and I have talked about this where. Uh, I, I was a television news reporter, and I remember back then I, there was a photographer I used to work with all the time, and we were probably 26 years old. I mean, I think now we were kids, and both of us had this idea that we wanted to go into uh, to becoming war correspondents, and we talked about it, and we planned on how we would do it. And I look back now, and I realize that that it was a blessing that that never happened to me, because after reading, and you know, and I'm a big fan of the war correspondents, obviously, but all of those people were traumatized and changed forever by the images that are stuck in their minds that they can never, you know, it's a little like most people, and they say this about first responders too, but it's true for war correspondents as well. You're running towards the stuff that most people are fleeing. And when you see what, what they saw and you see what most people never see in this life, it does change you. And there are long-term impacts to that. And that's why I said to you privately, don't just be aware of your physical safety as a concern your mental and psychological long-term health is involved here too. And we need war correspondence, but I'm not sure my friend from uh, Latvia needs to be an extra victim on top of all the other ones we're going to have. Look, 
I am not going to victimize myself. This is a profession that I chose because, well, I always wanted to be a journalist. A little secret, I'm a, I'm a big nerd. <laughs> I, I currently, I quit Warhammer. Now, now I'm a Battletech fan. I, I like those little little plastic robots. I also collect a historical army because of your historical show that basically told you, you spoke about historical wargaming. After that show, I found that system that you play and I have an, a Roman legion. <laughs> Thank you for that. And and as a kid, you know, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of comics in Latvia, but uh, we uh, <clears throat> obtained them in ways that should not be mentioned because you couldn't buy any. And my favorite one was uh, Transmetropolitan by uh, by Warris Ellen. It was about the journalist. And it was based, if you would take Huntress Thompson and put him in a kind of a cyberpunk dystopian future. And I loved it. But about this, uh, look, it, it's my thing, I'll manage. But what I really want, wonder about is that People maybe don't understand how global truly this is. Russia is a huge country. Russia is immense. And when the shooting war started, I was surprised because, again, as we spoke last time, I thought it was going to be some action in Donbass and that it could go out of hand. And then I went to sleep. And the next day I wake up, literally after our conversation and everything, turns out it's gone all the way. What I didn't expect, and I want your opinion on this, how the Russian army stalled, because we both know Soviet history. We both knew how Soviet army is corrupt. But did anyone really expect this level of kind of logistics failures? What does the United States military think of this? How are other, other countries looking at the Russian military right now and its potential? Well, can't answer for what the United States military thinks of this. I can tell you, though, that, you know, obviously I pay a lot of attention to this because this is right up my interest area. And we let me back up and give you a little history on this. So in the 1970s, and I'm old enough to have been, you know, mentally active and thinking about these things in the 1970s, sorry to say. But there was a lot of talk in the 70s about that the era of um, armored vehicles, tanks, for example, is over. Right. And they were talking about all the reasons that tanks would be made obsolete. And then during the 80s and 90s, there was a, a backlash by proponents of armor who said, see, armor's still useful. Look at what it did during the Gulf War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we're seeing here, perhaps, and this is one of those things that falls into the category of what you and I were just discussing, where you're not, there's going to be a postmortem pardon the absolutely horrible term in this case, after this is all over militarily to try to, to see what lessons can be gleaned. But looking at it from where we sit right now, this looks to me like the realization of what those people in the 1970s were saying about armor being more of a death trap and less of a, of a queen of the battlefield anymore because of handheld weapons and whatnot. Um, there, and, and as you know, I mean, there's a reason that these uh, Russian tanks, just like there's a reason that American armor has all this, this reactive gear on the outside of the tanks to prevent hollow charge weapons and everything from, from burning through. All of that is an attempt to overcome what in the 1970s were seen as the poison to armor that was being developed. What kept us from learning that lesson in the 1970s was two countries of relatively uh, equal ability facing off. I mean, when the United States is facing the Iraqi army in the 1990s, that's not a fair fight. To say that Ukraine against Russia is a fair fight is a misnomer too. But what we're seeing is U.S. and NATO intelligence helping uh, the Ukrainians figure out where the opponents are and these weapons that are being given to them proving to be every bit as deadly to armor as people in the 1970s were theorizing. 
One person said to me once in a conversation I had, what is the alternative? I mean, if you get rid of armor, what do you use in place of it? Which is a really good point. But when you, the one thing that you can look at, which looks like pretty good figures to me, I mean, it's harder to say how many people have died, but there's a lot of tanks that people can take pictures of that are destroyed that you can look and say, okay, well, it may not be as high as the Ukrainians say, and it may not be as low as the Russians say, but that's a heck of a lot of tanks to be destroyed by people with shoulder fired weapons. And there are military um, lessons that are going to be gleaned from all this. Maybe what we're seeing here, uh, Christops, is, is the 1970s attitude towards the day of the, the tank being the superior battlefield weapon is over when a couple of guys with a shoulder fired weapon can take out a tank at the front of a column. I mean, listen, I, this is an unpopular thing to say, especially with how the Russians are behaving on the ground. But I watch these war videos that are coming out of this of, of Ukraine shot by drones and everything. And the first thing you notice, and you would not have noticed this in the Second World War, is when that tank at the front of the armored column is hit, people jump out of the armored vehicles all the way down the column and start running for the side of the road. The reason for that is they know they're safer on the side of the road than they are in that tank. And that's an important thing to take note of. When I was driving here, because uh, my trip to Kiev was long, I first went to Odessa, which was from Riga to Budapest with a plane, then 17-hour train ride to Bucharest, then 12-hour bus ride with three hours in between to Kishinev in Moldova, with the least visited, by the way, uh, capital of Europe, and from there, six more hours into Odessa. And during that time, I re-listened to Blueprint for Armageddon because it was relevant. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard somebody be able to do that in one trip. Yes, well, I managed to pull off such a trip. I listened to that very closely, and now I think about the lessons of war. And you mentioned how, uh, you know, the French went into the First World War wearing these Napoleonic era uniforms. And, and what you get when you come out of it is everyone wearing Stahlhelms, right? This darkness. And what we're seeing right now is the same thing, sort of, because people were, people were thinking that wars are fought differently. People are not adapting their tactics, and, and now the drones are playing a major part. I'm sorry if, I, if this offends anyone, but if you think about this, they're in a similar position as uh, as in the First World War, because um, right now drones were used only in limited quantities and on the other side of the world, just like previously the Maxim gun had only been used against the Zulu by the Imperial powers. Yes. And this is not to offend anyone. This is the history does not repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes moment. I feel like we're, we're seeing something similar here. I don't know the way the warfare will change, but... I think that something in conventional warfare has to change because maybe we'll come up with the next thing that is not a tank anymore. That is something else. Some new weapon system, possibly. Again, this, this might be a nice little point because there are military attaches everywhere in Kiev. Every country ever has sent its people in. And the military-industrial complex, oh, they, they've sent their, their observers. There are tests about... Oh, well, um, does your military want this thing? Well, look at how many Russian tanks it has blown up. It's the same thing all over again. There are battlefield tests and everything. Just, it's so bizarre to view this real time. And yesterday, I literally stepped on a destroyed Russian tank that was hit by one of those missiles. And I saw another one. I saw a tank which, with its turret blown off. And, and I saw the burnt corpse of a driver, and that was insane, because Facebook didn't even, or Twitter didn't even censor that message. You know, they normally censor pictures that are obscene or violent, but that piece of charcoal that I saw doesn't even rem remind you of a human being. It's so innocuous that the Facebook algorithms don't even recognize it's a dead body. And the turret of the tank was blown straight off. 
the, the levels of damage that that handheld weapons can do to armor at this point is are so insane that I think no one expected this. And I would like to compare it to World War One because no one really knew how dangerous artillery could be at that war or machine guns, for example, when used in mass. There's always this uh, ebb and flow, this Hegelian dialectic between the uh, offensive and the defensive power. So in the old days, we used to use it in terms of like armored knights. And so the armorers were always trying to create better armor, and the people that created weapons were always trying to create weapons that would pierce better armor. And so there's ebb and flow, right, between attack and defense. So there's a number of ways something like this could go. For example, we could talk about tanks of the future being more like the drones of the present, right? When instead of putting people in those tanks that can end up like that that destroyed, carbonized human being that you saw, the tanks themselves could be automated. There's the other aspect that the countermeasures being taken by the people who make tanks, taking into account all the things you mentioned, the drones, shoulder-fired weapons, and all those things, and finding the new modern equivalent to what the reactive armor was supposed to do 10 or 20 years ago. That's a possibility also. I already talked to folks in the military who will constantly point out that this is perhaps a tactical issue and the Russians always get blamed for not having enough infantry fanning out on both sides of these columns to deal with people who might be carrying You know, in other words, especially if you're a proponent of things like armor, you're going to find all kinds of reasons that armor is still valuable and all the reasons that this is happening the way it is, right? Again, doctrine tactics. Just like battleships. Yes, just like, and by the way, it's worth comparing because battleships were kept around in the United States long after their real usefulness was over because people loved battleships and they kept trying to figure out ways to make them useful. Remember in the 1980s, we, we brought the, the Missouri class battleships out of mothballs and used them to shell the coast, the Mediterranean in the Middle East. And this was somehow supposed to make these worth all the cost of maintenance and pulling them out of mothballs. And of course, we all know you could use all kinds of things to bombard a coastline. You don't need a battleship to do it, but but there's a battleship lobby, if you will, just like there's a tank lobby, just like there's a shoulder-fired anti-tank weapon lobby. And this is where, as you said, you send observers, which is an age-old practice, to go look at wars elsewhere to try to figure out what you can learn so you can report back you know, to your military establishment. I would like to say that to me, some of this dovetails into the question of alliance systems. Like the, the thing I take the most flack about these days is my long-term contention that it was probably not a great thing for NATO to keep moving to the east or that NATO might have, uh, because its reason for existence was to, to counteract the Soviet Union, that when the Soviet Union went away, NATO maybe should have gone away and something filled the gap instead, right? Something, a post-USSR uh, alliance system. But what people I'm talking to on Twitter and elsewhere like I heard from a guy from Norway today that said, what is your problem? This is guaranteed the peace. And I say to him, yes, sometimes alliance systems help guarantee the peace, but we're ignoring the fact that sometimes alliance systems drag you into war. I mean, one of the key causes that's always been used as a first world war trigger point is the alliance system at the time. So it's not a 100% positive thing. It's more nuanced than that. Sometimes you want that and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you want something that's an alliance system, but that's different than the alliance system you currently have. Now, I'm going to create a little breaking news here, my friend, and ask you what you talked about today about this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
First of all, I would like to mention the fact that I specifically, before this conversation, I found that article from Der Spiegel where Gorbachev personally says no one had promised anything to the Soviet Union. He mentioned this to Der Spiegel in an interview in 2014. Okay, that's number one. There were no written promises, at least none that he can remember, and he called this a myth. You can find it on my Twitter. He's on camera. He blatantly states, no, this idea that we were tricked is a myth, and I don't know why the West invented it. Gorbachev's words, not mine. Well, well, well. first of all, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I don't even know that that necessarily is the salient point because I don't I don't think the West promising... I, at, least, at least I found the source for you, okay? <laughs> but, but about the breaking news part, that's the most important part because I don't want to delve into that conversation with you again because we've, we've spent so much time... Dear listeners, comrades, we have argued with Dan over details about this on Twitter, like to no end, to be honest. About the breaking news, which is important, if you will turn on the news right now as you're listening to this, you'll probably hear one of the weirdest questions ever because the Baltic um, presidents and Polish president just visited Kiev and they made a bunch of public statements. And um, I was there because turns out I'm the only Latvian journalist who has the proper accreditation. I went through all the channels, through the Ministry of Defense, through everything and got, got invited to the meeting. What happened was meeting got delayed by two hours because United States President uh, Sleepy Joe Biden, I'm really sorry about it, uh, he, he basically called into Zelensky as well, and I don't know what he said because we weren't revealed that information. After they made their remarks about how they've seen the victims and everything, yeah, they made utterly weird statements on their own. If you look at the press and what they said in the conversation, the only thing happened is the Lithuanian president actually called the, the Russian army zombies, and uh, he also called... Putin, a zombie, basically, everyone who's giving commands. And there were like questions about, you know, the French election and everything. However, I managed to push through and I don't know how I managed to pull over the Reuters and all the other news agencies. And I asked them the question about Intermarium. The problem is that Estonian president replied to me and he said, it is impossible to be in two alliances at the same time. Basically, Estonians do not want to leave NATO. And Lithuanian president stated that anything that would disrupt NATO as the sole guarantor of peace would be harmful to Lithuanian interests. Which is not the answer that I had hoped for. But Dan, you're bringing up a great idea here because at one point I've also heard Ukrainians on the ground, Ukrainian soldiers and, and, and officers speaking about this. Maybe it's time to let NATO go. Maybe it's actually time to let NATO go and, and, and let us do something. And maybe we should just actually give a few nukes to our new alliance, some strong deterrence just to prevent war. But to be fair, we've seen for a month now that war can be fought without nukes. But yeah, I managed to pull through this question. And uh, even though I didn't get the answer that I had hoped for, that we will look into this because Ukraine is probably going to not join NATO, I, I still am happy that I pulled, pulled this question off. I agree with Dan here. And I'm still a strong supporter of these regional alliances. You look at NATO and you see United States guaranteeing it, although it's a matter of national sovereignty. But one thing that also happened during this whole war thing is that there was this conflict between Armenians and Azerbaijanis in the Karabakh. Yes. Azerbaijanis have used this war to just waltz in and take it for themselves and nobody noticed. Well, that's not uncommon, by the way. But let me back up a second, because I, I think... When you ask the uh, the Lithuanian and the Estonian representatives about this, there's no question that if you're currently in NATO, the idea of getting out of NATO to get into some other arrangement seems ridiculous because NATO seems like the ultimate protection, right? We're talking about this as a, you know, what you should do before you join NATO, right? But once you're in NATO, no one's leaving. I keep my optimism up. I'm an optimist in life. 
If we could make this new Warsaw Pact 2.0 as parallel to NATO, then we could maybe turn to NATO and say, hey, you know what? American people, if you give us like a, a nuke, maybe two, I don't know, give us a nuke and then you can just write off protecting the Baltic states and Poland and Ukraine as well from your daily budget. You'll save a ton of money. Just give us a few nukes. We won't drop them on anyone. We promise because we are actually responsible people. How about that? W would your government trade a few nukes for not having to worry about the fact that you have to defend Baltics? A couple of points. The, the short answer is no. The nuclear non-proliferation agreements that have been signed, nothing like that's going to happen. But And you know how much flack I took, if you recall, for saying that maybe some sort of a regional alliance should have a nuke and everybody just jumped on me. I was one of those people, by the okay, way. Okay, well, let's remember things, things change once the war starts, right? But let's stop for a second and, and back up about why, because people think I'm trying to deny the people in Eastern Europe, uh, NATO protection from their adversaries. But as you and I have talked about, I am not sure Americans have ever been completely informed or understand. And this was one of the first interviews of anybody who had a name that I ever did on a podcast was we interviewed paleo conservative Pat Buchanan, who had written a book that talked about a lot of this. Right. And one of his points was Americans do not know by and large, that they have been pledged to treat an attack on, let's just say, Estonia as though it were an attack on Los Angeles or New York. And when they find out, which would usually happen when the war starts, they're going to be upset about this. Now, nothing excuses the American citizens not understanding, but most citizens elsewhere you know, have jobs to go to, lives to, they don't pay attention to deep foreign policy questions. But the reason I brought this up to you at the time was I was saying, if we end up in a circumstance where Estonia is invaded and the president of the United States, you know, holds this giant news affair where he tells the American people that we're now in the third world war because of our commitment to Estonia, I guarantee you, you're going to have a lot of politicians saying, wait, 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 we should not be getting into a nuclear exchange over Estonia. Certainly there's something. In other words, if you go back and look at the first world war and how much of that revolved around the invasion of a neutral country, Belgium, that, that had been pledged to be defended by multiple great powers, there were talks then and afterwards that maybe Belgian neutrality was not worth the First World War. That's a human response also. And, I, and my point was, I'm not sure that Estonia should rely on the United States and friends to treat an attack on Estonia as though it really was an attack on London or New York or whatnot. And if you had a regional alliance with a bunch of people who were just as worried about the Russian revanchism as they were, the Poles, for example, and friends, those people get it, right? And and they understand that an attack on Estonia means they're in trouble too. So I think a regional alliance also solidifies feeling of shared worry and shared sacrifice here that people a long way away from that area can come up with all sorts of good reasons to not exactly, you know, commit to the letter of the Article 5 commitment. Does that make sense? The fecklessness of the West. Maybe. Yeah, it does. It does. A it makes sense a lot. And I mean, Ukrainians right now are saying, where is the West? Where is the West? Well, this is what we were talking about. If they had Putin is constantly trying to portray this inside his own country as not a war against Ukraine, because if he loses to Ukraine, 
that's one thing. I mean, he, that, that's destruction. I mean, how can you lose to Ukraine if you're Russia, if you're built up your military and everything? Well, and if you say you're br- you're all brothers and you're really one country, but you're 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 knocking their buildings down and killing their civilians, doesn't quite match the marketing material. Exactly. Does it? So he portrays it already as a war against the United States. This special operation is to crush the United States hegemony and all that stuff. And, and the problem is here that. Um, He's trying to pull in the United States and NATO into this war. He needs to portray this in his own country because of the warmongering as a war against the West. And, but one thing that I don't like about many arguments here is that, um, you know, Putin would like to view the world as something where there are spheres of interest and superpowers. And, and, and a lot of people also just portray this in Ukraine, what happened in 2014, as CIA influence. And, and sure, there might be some. However... People forget that, for example, the Baltic states got their independence and we did it on our own. We might have some help, sure, but we did it. And when people try to deny us our own agency, when you say, what what is the alternative? Shouldn't we have joined the EU and NATO? We wanted that. People speak about, Americans at least do, and this is a rock in your garden, but you guys tend to think that the world is played only in spheres of influence and that we are dumb sheep only to be led by the world's superpowers. Oh, Zelensky couldn't have made this speech. It was written to him by a CIA speechwriter. I've heard such arguments. We have brains on our own. We make our own decisions. We are not anyone's puppets and we have agency. And this is the most offensive part because Russia's interests in this region. What about our interests? My people, Latvians and also Lithuanians and Estonians and Georgians and everyone else who broke off from the Soviet Union, we endured a lot of horrible things. We wanted to get out and we, we did it. We were the ones from inside who, yes, with information and, and with some aid, but we did it. it. It's an achievement of ours. And when someone says that we should be in Russia's sphere of influence and, and that we are in, under anyone's boot, no. No, we, we are our own people. Of course, politically, economically, we will obviously not be as strong as the great powers. And yes, that term is still actively, it should be used actively today, of course. But we still have our own decisions and choices, you know. Let's talk about that for a bit, because there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, you mentioned, uh, and you hear this all the time in the United States, and I've brought it up myself, the activities and involvement, you know, for example, the color revolutions and all this kind of stuff. But it's important to remember that that's nothing new, and countries do this all the time. I mean, we did a show a while back, a history show on uh, the early years of nuclear weapon. And one of the things that was so interesting to me during the research for that show was how the, the Soviets at the time claimed to have been responsible for electing John F. Kennedy to the presidency. In other words, you know, shades of this whole Donald Trump, Russian help, blah, blah, blah thing. In other words, nothing new under the sun, right? You had the same thing in, you know, 1960, right? So what that shows is that these nations are always working behind the scenes to try to create conditions that they see favorable to their country. So the fact that the United States may have been involved in trying to create a friendly democratic regime in Ukraine, as though this is somehow you know beyond the pale, it's just the opposite. It's standard operating procedure for major nations and minor nations too. I mean, the, the stuff from the First World War that's been coming out about how involved the Serbian Black Hand group was in prompting things. I mean, this is just espionage. So rather than suggest that this is somehow beyond the pale, it is instead, it would be surprising if it wasn't happening is a better way to put it. But let's talk about spheres of influence because I think it's a good point. And I hear all the time from people in smaller nations saying that this is offensive, et cetera, et cetera, which I totally get. The important thing that I try to tell people is that as an American, 
There's a hypocritical thing you have as an American trying to say that other countries shouldn't have this. Now, this is we're not dealing with the rightness or wrongness of it. We're just saying the United States doesn't just have a sphere of influence. Traditionally, we consider the entire North and South American continents to be our sphere of influence. And they don't say sphere of influence. We call it the Monroe Doctrine here in the United States, right? So my personal views would be if we said it's the 21st century, that is old fashioned thinking, the kind of thinking that gets countries into wars, right? So we need to do away with that. I would say fabulous. I'm all for it, right? So if Mexico decides to go communist, the United States should just say, okay, I'm okay with that actually, because I'm a bit of a insular person when it comes to this stuff. I don't care what other countries do, but here's the problem. The problem is, is that countries are a little like planets, and big countries have gravitational pull. And we can say all we want that the United States completely should stay out of all Mexican affairs or Guatemalan affairs or Panamanian affairs, but that doesn't make it happen, right? Just because it's the wrong thing from an international morality standpoint, if you say Jupiter should not be able to have all those moons around it controlled by its gravity, that doesn't change the fact that it does. Um, so, so I think there's this issue that is perhaps worth exploring in the modern world. This is where I think the world is so ill served by having such a functionally uh, inefficient and incompetent, let's use the right words, United Nations when it comes to international affairs. Remember, the United Nations was, was started as a broken entity. When you have a National Security Council with permanent members on it that can veto anything, that is a broken uh, institution from the get-go. It's it's past its time. We should get rid of this. We should we should not have permanent members in the Security Council. World War II ended more than seventy-five years ago. Okay, but you're making my case for the NATO thing too, which is which is these things should be updated, especially when we see they don't work. But I can hear my international relations professor in college saying to me, Dan. They work for the people that they work for, right? I mean, the permanent members of this of the UN think it's just fine when they've got what they want out of it. So this, but this gets to your small nation, big nation thing again. I fully see the the Norwegian uh, uh, Twitter person that I was talking to. I fully see his point, and it's exactly how I would feel if I lived in Norway. But I feel like denying the fact that countries, big countries especially, are going to be upset, worried. Uh, whatever words you want to use as an adjective there about adversarial actions on their border, I almost feel like that's a little like gravity. It doesn't matter what we feel about it morally. I'm not sure you can make it go away. I could be wrong about that, but that's how I see it. I understand the United States getting getting into this stuff, right? Because, um, well, tell me how many percentage of uh, children's hospitals don't have running water in the United States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None. None, that's, probably. That's the thing. Your, your government such as it is, I am in no position to criticize your government because I'm a Latvian and I only know from secondhand accounts about what's going on in the United States. Okay, but what you're doing though is you're backing me up. I can't really criticize the Russians for declaring a sphere of influence, no matter what I think about it morally, because we do the same thing. You do the same thing and you have uh, you have running water in all of, all of your children's hospitals. Meanwhile, in Russia, you don't. Wait, wait, wait. How does that matter? Uh, if we didn't have running water, we would still be upset if Mexico went communist, wouldn't we? Yeah, but then again, uh, if, if that's all your country does, if because uh, you guys in the West like to still use the words Russia being a superpower, the only sphere, the only sphere where they are a superpower 
is nuclear weapons, and that's it. John McCain said they were a gas station, not a country, if you recall. A Swedish-slash-Latvian historian called them an empire of rags. Here's the problem, though, Kristaps, and this is what makes this something that we can't use history as a guide for like we normally can, and you mentioned it, nuclear weapons. Yeah, that is a game changer. People say that's all they've got. That's all they need. Right. They had the reason they're down to six thousand or eight thousand nuclear weapons from sixty thousand when, when when I was a kid is because you don't need sixty thousand. You need whatever it takes to overwhelm an anti-missile defense shield. That's what you need. Uh, and all you have to do is say, if you really want to defend Estonia, it's going to cost you New York Look, City. Let me just interlude this here. Normally, Dan would say Latvia because <laughs> I know he would say Latvia. But hey, Estonian listeners. Hey, the boy said, Dan knows about Estonia too. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> of course I know about Estonia too. So, so you know, to, to me, Christoph, what's so interesting about what's going on here is what it's done to countries that normally uh, don't think very much about this. So when you had said that you're my friend from the Russian, well, I know several Swedes very well. Uh, some of them are practically family members. Sweden does not border Russia. Uh, does it not? Isn't that their part that touches? No, not at all. No, no, no. Russia is bordered by Finland and Norway and Sweden's tied in. Sweden does not border Russia. No, I didn't know if up up at the far north there was some connectivity. But but believe me, the Swedes have some definite feelings on this. People that knew my father. Yeah, my dad was in an international business, so he had friends all over the world. Tell them if they ever visit Riga, beers on me. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, but I called him and I said, are you okay? sent me a very long note and then a phone call where we discussed this. And it, it, it has shaken Sweden. The way you know that this is not in Russia's interest, especially if they're pushing the NATO can't expand towards our border thing, is because they're going to get everything that they say they don't want in spades here. Um, I mean, the Swedes are talking about increases in defense budget. The Finns and the Swedes are talking about potentially joining NATO. That was not even a thing before this invasion happened. Now, here's the thing we have to bear in mind, my friend. I am not sure that Vladimir Putin's interests and the interests of the country he leads have not diverged here. Dude, I, I literally told you that. I literally told you that on Twitter. That was my point. Oh, well, we've, we've been saying this forever. I mean, whenever you deal with an authoritarian regime, it's hard to know whether this is, the, this is what's in the interest of Saddam Hussein or in the interest of Iraq, right? Yeah, because, see, the thing is, when I explain Putin, you have to understand that he comes from Bratva. He's part of the mafia. He used to be, at least in the 90s. He's a very interesting person since he used to be a KGB colonel. And we have a saying in the old Soviet sphere that you never stop being a KGB colonel. Just like you don't stop being a CIA person. You just don't quit the job. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Job's always with you. Then he quit being a KGB officer. And then in the 90s, he literally turned to mafia. He turned to organized crime. 
So he has crime connections. He has KGB connections. He's thinking like this Russian criminal. And they have these very own specific rules how they operate. Panyatia. So if you want to understand how Putin thinks, listen to my episode about about how Bratva works, then listen to my episode what Panyatia are, then listen to my episode about the 90s, and then you can maybe start understanding Putin. Because that's the number one mistake people make. You guys tend to assume that um, Putin is just another leader. He's not. And when I say Putin, I mean collective Putin, of course. I did a talk, a three-hour talk with Lex Friedman, who I assume you know of, um, and and Lex is from Russia. He's basically half his family's in Russia and the other half's in Ukraine. And we did this before this invasion, quite a bit before this invasion. And we got into a conversation because uh, I had said that I don't I basically don't care who Russia puts in power, but I want that person to be elected. And I don't want the the adversaries of the regime to be assassinated or disappear and all these things. And I asked him, I said, do the Russian people like Putin? And his, I'm going to paraphrase, they love him. So if you've got a man who is a mafioso, but he's a person that the country loves, I'm, I try to get my mind around what that means. I can tell you this because, for one, he's been controlling the media. He's eliminated all the freedom of the press starting 2004. That's what I said to Lex. I said, I said, I can't buy that this guy is the, the chosen he's one. He's literally placed himself everywhere. And uh, in Russia, there's this term, basically, czar is good, the boyars are bad. The czar is a good person. He wants the best for us. He's just kept misinformed by his court, right? And the same is happening with Putin. And the other thing to blame is that the Russian opposition that is liberal, they have been looking at the people whom they should be talking to, whom they should be saying, actually, no, we need this global economy thing, and maybe maybe EU isn't as bad as, as the propaganda says, with content. This is why people who oppose Putin from the right call him a liberal fascist. And this is why Russian Orthodox Patriarchy, with uh, Mr. Gundyayev, ex-KGB agent, mind you, who is the current Patriarch of the Orthodox Church, openly stating that this war is a holy war because the Western Europe and the United States are forcing people to be gay and attend gay prides. I, I want to stop you, though, and just point out that what you continually make sound like a, a very specific Russian phenomenon is really authoritarianism across. The, I mean, this is Saddam Hussein. This is Hitler. This is Perón. I mean, you can go down the list. I mean, how is this any different than the Germans who were saying if Hitler only knew what was going on? OK, yeah, but again, uh, probably, probably. Yes. Um, look, I could easily be wrong. So this is not a rightness or wrongness thing. But when I look at Saddam Hussein and then you realize the religious leaders that were basically beholden to Saddam Hussein would talk about war with Iran is a holy war. I mean, this this is a, a playbook that we have seen many times. I think Putin is falling into the category of the authoritarian playbook. Um, but I don't disagree with anything you've said. I just don't think it's in any way unique. Well, I guess so. But uh, you know what? We've been talking for an hour. How about you finally ask me those hard questions that you promised me? I want to know what you see, right? I'm not. These are not hard questions. I want information. I don't have points of view. I want to know what you see. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. 
Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. And we're back. Now, what do you want to know? Well, okay, so talk to me about, like, I don't imagine you're having conversations with Russian troops, but I imagine you're talking to Ukrainian fighters, correct? Yes. Okay, what is their attitude about how things are going and how they see things on the ground? Help me understand better the mood on the ground amongst Ukrainian fighters. Well, for one, it's uh, not pretty. They only call Russians by the analog of what you would say the N-word. I haven't seen this level of hatred, even from ethnic Russians who are in Ukraine, because there are whole cities who are basically majority Russian, and they and they use the term Katsapi, which is a terribly offensive word, or Maskali, like Muscovites. They have such intense hate towards Russia right now, harshly mobilized and strong, because I went to one of those recruitment centers. Some of the people who volunteered and a lot of them volunteer. The Ukrainian people are just taking their families as, as refugees and they just, you know, get them to the border and they say their wives and, and kids goodbye. And then they just turn around at the border and go nearest recruiting point and volunteer. And some of them get turned away because they don't have enough guns. There are more people who are willing and ready to fight than they have guns. Especially after this whole retreat the Russians did, that boosted Ukrainian morale even more. I've spent many hours explaining that I speak Russian to you, but I am from Latvia. And when they hear the word Latvia, then they know that I'm from the Baltics and that we are in the know, so to speak. The morale is ridiculously high. And Russian soldiers, well, I've spoken to some. <laughs> Most of them don't even know why they went there, where they went here. A lot of them were just told that um, this was a learning exercise. They didn't even know they were crossing Ukraine's border, or so they claim at least. And a lot of them are actually just conscripts. Imagine this, you're 19 years old, you you finished high school and you didn't get into college, and then you got called into army. You probably held a gun in, in your arms twice in your life, and then you just got sent here. And it's crazy, because uh, Russians have way more manpower than Ukraine, but the motivation in Ukrainian forces is ridiculous. You know, the Russians too, if you look from a historical angle, and maybe this is not that instructive, but I can't help but notice the difference, is that when... And, and, you know, I say Russia, but Russia was at one point, you know, multiple different places. So you, we also were Russia. 
That's right. Exactly. So when Russia was attacked historically, they tend to do better as a military than they do when they're attacking someone who didn't attack them. So look at the winter war in Finland, for example, and what a disaster and debacle that was early on in 1940. The same logistical trouble, a lot of Russian soldiers wondering what the heck they're doing, killing Finns in the snow. But when the, the Soviet Union or Russia is attacked, well, I mean, then you get into Napoleon, Great Swedish Northern War, you get into the second, I mean, it, Russia becomes a very difficult place. A lot of the people who, who qualify as putting up the dogged, sometimes suicidal defense are Ukrainians too, right? So you look at the Second World War, so many of those people that we were in the, in the West going, well, look at how dogged and determined and, and tough these Russians are. Some of the time we were talking about Ukrainians, right? In other words, if the Russians had a civil war and one side was attacking and the other side was defending, would the attacking side be like the 1940s Winter War Russians and the defending side be more like the 1942, you know, save Mother Russia at all costs Russians? I mean, it's a fascinating thing to wonder about. My hotel is at the place where the 2014 revolution happened. Stupid question. Is there anybody in the hotel or is there any hotel services? I mean, what, what's it like? There is one hotel in Kiev. I paid about what five in dollars, that would be like six hundred dollars for a few nights, which is a lot of money for me because I'm I've spent about three thousand dollars on this trip already and I've been donated about um about uh, two thousand, so I'm I'm minus one thousand dollars at this point. So sorry I'm gonna monetize this episode, but um I don't know. I, you're listen, you're doing great work. You should be paid for this. Mainstream media in Latvia don't really care, and even though I'm the only one there, but Anyhow, I just got this hotel because it was the only one, and they have all the all the journalists here. I'm I'm like next room to me are some people from Reuters, and and also what are here are all the all the volunteers from United States, Canada, Australia, Latvia, all the foreign legion guys. They live here in the hotel. Like it's two blocks away from the presidential palace where where everything's happening, and I hear air raid sirens every night. Is there food or restaurants open? I mean, how are you living? The food's bad. Uh, because, well, they gave, they, they give us what they have. A lot of stores are closed. 90, 95% of the stores are closed everywhere. And the stores that are open have basically, the selection is terrible and they're running out of it. The food's there and they won't starve. But uh, let me tell you, I'm not eating fancy dinners. Where do you see this going from here? Do we expect the, the recalibration of Russian war goals to Donbass and the East. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day that was whether Putin is acting, you know, is he crazy like a fox or is he just crazy? And they were talking about, of course, the gas deposits and all those stuff. I mean, it's a known area with things underneath the ground that would be valuable long term. What What's your assessment of what, what this is going to revert to now in this next stage? Well, one thing's for sure. People who hope for a settlement deal after Bucha? No, I agree. I think I think this is how you know Russia's me- made a mistake here. At least, I don't know if Putin's made a mistake, but Russia's. Yeah, this is a thing, and I, uh, I'm i sorry if I'm not exactly objective about that, because I mentioned this on the show, but I lost my cousin there, who was from a Baptist organization, Baptist church organization. She was a Latvian lady who married an Argentinian person. They were just there giving food to people. And uh, two days ago when I was visiting, it was just... Um, yeah, you know, when the, when you get your loved one's body in a box, not a casket, but a box, right? What do you think happened? She was tied up and chopped into pieces, and uh, yeah, that's it. Why? Because she she was from the EU. So are they killing everybody from the EU that they run across? 
I don't know. I think it's vengeance. Therefore, I can't be objective here, but I know that a lot of Ukrainians share my pain. A lot of them do. Everyone here knows what, what the other people have been through. And Ukrainians right now, they're thinking about liberating Ukraine. They're going to take Donetsk and Lugansk back. And for them, any solution that does not involve Crimea being returned to Ukraine is a loss. I translated a poem from a Ukrainian poet, and he told me something that you might like. Ukraine has turned into an angry god. Not the god that died on a cross, but the but an older god, one who is vengeful. And he has now awoken to reap his deadly harvest, one from the old days. I, like everybody else who studies a lot of history, knows that history does not teach the kind of lessons that we pretend that it does. But the kind of lessons that it can teach are very different kind of lessons, and they're the ones based on human reactions collectively. So I was just watching a New York Times piece about all of the people in Afghanistan that are disappearing and are being murdered by the Taliban because they were cooperating with the United States and the allies when we were in that country. The gist of the piece is that this is somehow uniquely the Taliban's personal evil. And all I could think about was after the end of the Second World War, all the collaborators, they weren't necessarily always killed, but there was always a backlash afterwards with the people who cooperated with the perceived outsiders, right? So you just mentioned something and all I could think about was, well, that to me is a lesson of history, right? That the people who collaborate with the invaders are always going to face a backlash afterwards. So what happens, assuming what you just told me really does occur, and I think there's a chance that the Russians are pushed out of Donbass, what's going to happen to all those pro-Russian people who supported Russia, who would like to see a breakaway republic. I mean, are they safe from Ukrainian reprisals at that point? There's a human knee-jerk sort of response to people who are part of the other side. What do you think happens in that case? I think everyone who stated that they're pro-Russian on YouTube or any media just dies. I was hoping maybe we could hope for exile. I was hoping it wouldn't go to the, the murder route. No, no, they're dead. Hmm. They are just dead. I'm sorry for, for breaking the, the glass here, but they're dead. Okay, so so now let me take you to the next step, right? If we're going a step-by-step step here. So then, then if the reprisals that we can expect to happen because they normally do in these situations do indeed occur, this will play into not just the Russian Putin narrative, uh, but also the Americans and Westerners who want to believe the Russian Putin narrative, they will turn the tables propagandistically speaking and say, look what these the Ukrainians are murdering women and you know what I Yes, exactly. I know. And this will happen. And a strategist would try to see three steps ahead and go, okay, we better be careful that we don't win this war and lose the peace because the predictable human counter-reaction to horrific violence and atrocities actually breaks up. Because what it will do is empower all these people in my country, for example, who say, see, the Ukrainians were the bad guys, or there's no good guys here, or whatever. I mean, fill in the blank on what the... I know. And uh, let me tell you, I know that Zelensky is taking care of this, because we have to look at the responses. You see, Zelensky actually prosecutes his war criminals. Yes, it is confirmed that Ukrainian soldiers have shot into, have kneecapped, basically, Russian soldiers that are captured. But Ukrainian side pursues them, and they will. The Russian side has denied that Bucha even exists. The latest, by the way, came from Lukashenko, it was like today, where Lukashenko in Belarus has stated that 
it was all a special operation once again just this time from um from british special services apparently the british had dragged bodies all over from the country to be presented in bucha which is just laughable i don't think it's gonna get that bloody just because um you know we're eastern europeans and we know what's up like the people who might get oppressed they also know what's up they'll they'll cover their their tracks trust me on this one and um, they'll be super quiet for the rest of their lives just to not die. One of the things you and I talked about, and I want your opinion on, normally when armies are not carefully controlled, you have outbreaks of atrocities. When we were talking about the show and the Second World War in the Pacific and we were talking about Japanese atrocities, one of the big questions was how high up the command chain do the atrocity orders go, right? Are these a bunch of out of control soldiers or is this part of policy? So I had asked you earlier, and maybe this is worth getting into you. Do you think that what we're seeing here are these atrocities and looting? Is, is this stuff that is in, intentional to punish or send a message? Or are these soldiers who are not adequately controlled well enough? And let's point out that historically, Russian soldiers have had a problem with, with a lack of institutional control when it comes to this kind of stuff. What's your opinion on how high up the food chain this sort of a policy or not policy goes? I don't think Putin is directly involved in this. Putin probably thought Ukraine would surrender in three days. I don't believe he's dumb. I think he's maybe mentally unstable, but not dumb. I believe this is on the regional commander level, like colonels or something. It's not that Russian side encourages it. It's just that Russians don't punish it. They turn a blind eye to murderers, and they actively encourage looting because the soldiers come from poor areas anyways. And this is a whole nother topic, how much overrepresented the ethnic minorities of Russia are in the Russian army because they live in the poorer regions, therefore they're more likely to sign up. It's kind of like if the United States went to a war, but only black people were called into an army and then would be basically volunteered to go fight in the front lines. It's kind of like that in Russia right now. And the biggest question here is that um, no one understands really, not even myself, is the fact that why Putin just doesn't come up and say, well, yes, Bucha, massacres happened. Those were these regional commanders. They are to blame. They gave the orders. We shot them. And this is done. What I don't get is why, why Putin doesn't come clean. He has this perfect opportunity to basically, you know, prove that Russia does not intend to commit war crimes. He denies everything. He still claims it's all a Western setup. Well, let me and look, I don't I don't want to be defending the Russians. here. What I try to do sometimes is ask myself, what is specifically, you know, a part of the problem here with Russia and what is more of a of a institutional sort of thing? So I look at my own country for comparison. My country has never had any problem singling out rogue actors. So if a U.S. soldier rapes a local in, a, in another country, it's not that hard for the United States to throw that person in jail. We executed people uh, in this country's history for bad behavior like that. But that's very different than something that's more institutional. So um, whether we're talking about something like the My Lai massacre in Vietnam or whether we're talking about uh, the Iraq uh, Abu Ghraib prison scandal or anything like that, that becomes a lot harder, even for a government that's that, that says it's transparent. Right. And and that and that has a free press and all that, it becomes a lot harder for them to come out and say, yes, we did this because it's not a rogue actor. These are things that appear to go higher up the command chain and look more institutional. 
And once the institution is involved, there's a self-protective sort of cloak of deniability that tends to come into play. And this may be a bureaucracy thing. I don't know. But it's why I ask you how high up the food chain you think these things go. The thing is, I don't know if Putin's a rational agent anymore. So I can't tell you it goes all the way to the top. But but the rational actor thing, I think, is key because and this cycles us back to the nuclear weapons thing. There is no good reason for anyone to use nuclear weapons in this circumstance. But that implies that we have people in control who are rational actors. And I think that is not necessarily always the smart move to make. Look how sick Hitler was at the end and how many drugs they were shooting him up with and everything else. And yet the man was still calling all the shots, even at that point, that what happens if that leader, if they ever were a rational actor, what happens if they lose their mind? What happens if they become sick? Well, I tell you, I tell you what happens. War in Ukraine happens. Well, or what if that leader is facing an execution at a war crimes trial? Maybe all of a sudden his personal needs begin to be more important to him than what might be best for the people he or she is leading. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of questions worth asking about in this situation along those lines. I don't know why Putin needed this war. The day Putin gave his speech about Ukraine and those guns, he gave his speech to the people, right? Guys from the Foreign Policy magazine just called me up. And they asked me, hey, dude, um, our interpreters, they just gave us this uh, message about what Putin said, but they're not native Russian speakers, and you are. And, and what they gave us makes no sense. It's illogical. It's dumb. Can you please translate this and explain it to Americans? You have deadline until uh, tomorrow, 6 a.m. And I was like, okay, uh, to be honest, he does speak nonsense because I just went through his historical arguments and everything is just awful. But uh, all the situation here is it's so muddled. Like, and I think I think the Baltics got off easy in this one. The Russians always know that the Baltics are different, but Ukrainians are their own people. And we get into the historical myths. Kiev and Rus, the mother of all Russian states. Would you agree? Yeah, from the Varangian beginning. Exactly, from the Rurik himself. And the problem is, if you are a Russian czar, as you know, the official title of Russia is czar of all the Russians. Great Russia, the Russians. White Russia, the Belarusians. And the Little Russians, the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians hate being called Little Russians. How can you call your country Russia? You yourself a czar or Kaiser or Caesar to everyone else, because czar, Kaiser, Caesar, same thing, really. If you don't rule over all of Russia's. The problem is Ukrainians don't see themselves as little Russians. They see themselves as Ukrainian. If you look at this closely, then uh, the center of Russian civilization of this whole Rurikid dynasty and everything, it lies in Kiev. There's Novgorod back in the day. Novgorod is up north. Novgorod is St. Petersburg now. Yeah, but that, that, was, that was the first founding area of the, the Varangians, though. This is why I wanted to get you on the show, because all this conflict has such ridiculously deep ties in history. Russia don't doesn't care that much about Finland, because Finland was never part of Russia. And Russia is claiming to be a cultural union of all Russians. And that involves Russia, Belarus, and what we know as Ukraine. Legitimacy depends upon it, because Putin has no legitimate support. He falsifies elections to the nth degree and, and I don't trust the don't trust the polls. And at this point if he's not the czar in Kiev as well, if he doesn't have a puppet, then people might start asking questions. Why is he calling himself a representative of Russia? And what is Russia even? So Ukrainians and Russians, this conflict goes deep. Let me give a, a positive 
spin on some of this stuff because we've been so negative. But there are some ways to look at this, maybe not from a Ukrainian perspective, but maybe from a Baltic perspective or maybe even a Belarusian perspective if they get rid of Luchenko, that what's happened here is I think that, let's just say Baltic, Baltic security has been enhanced. Oh yeah, immensely. With all these events. You remember I used to say to you that I thought all the people next to Russia had sort of PTSD, just like I thought the Russians had geopolitical PTSD. But the difference is the Russians have geopolitical PTSD because they've been invaded so often. The people next to Russia have geopolitical PTSD because Russia's taken them over and dealt with them so often. So, so I always thought, okay, you guys have Russia on the brain. But now we all have Russia on the brain. And I think the the situation that, for example, the Baltics always were aware of is now foremost in the minds of a bunch of countries who never gave it two thoughts. What Putin has done here, if he really believes having Western armaments right on his border is a terrible thing, he's created the conditions where he's going to get the worst case scenario. And it's been prompted by his very actions, he says, that were designed to prevent that. I really don't think he understands this because, for one, a lot of people have said to me that, you know, after all these sanctions, the Russian ruble went up, like, in price a lot. I think it was about 65, like, 65 rubles per dollar. Then it got into 130, but then Russia made a lot of steps to kind of lower it down. But the problem is that even though they forced all their companies to sell all their rubles to Russia and they've... Like, Russian ruble right now costs about 85, I think, maybe, rubles per dollar. Ruble has turned into a wooden currency, as we call it. Russia now states their course, rate of exchange, for ruble as they want it. Russia now has officially made it illegal for private citizens to use rubles to buy dollars or euros. Then Russia orders their companies to sell their rubles. Then Russia sets an artificially low rate for rubles so that they can buy in dollars for cheap. It's amazing. It's back to the Soviet Union. It's unsustainable, too. And that's what's going to get. Talk about this new world that we have now entered and what you think it's going to look like. Because I was talking to a financial advisor who's a friend of mine the other day, and he says, well, as far as he's concerned, this is the end of this latest period of globalization, that it's over. You asked this one question, the Punic Wars episodes, like, what's it like to face an elephant with a spear? That's an important question. I've always wondered about how did the people who lived through historical events felt like? And I feel like I have an answer to that right now. Yeah, you do. You do. You absolutely do. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. And we've seen an end of an age. I think that future historians will say that the post-Soviet peace ended in, uh, ended in February 24th, 2022. You don't think they'd point to Georgia and all that and, and, and Grozny and, and, and all of those kinds of things, too? That will be the buildup to the situation. The appetizer? Probably, yes. That's why I would really listen to your First World War show, because the end of an era there. 19th century Victorian era beauty. And I love 19th century. That's my favorite era. We have the period from 1991 to 2022, and that's going to be a historical era. And that's over now. And we are at the beginning of the new one. What, what the new world is going to look like? I have no idea. 
Well, this is where the Chinas and the Indias and what have you come into play big time, because whether or not this is going to be a a quarantined nation, Russia, after these events, or whether or not they're going to be part of an open world that involves a couple of big nations, but not the rest of the world. I mean, this is going to be a fascinating sort of um, 21st century realignment. But as you said, none of us knows where it's going to go. Dude, let me speak about one thing that is going to happen 100%. Think about this fact. Sudan relies 100% on Ukrainian and Russian grain imports. Egypt relies 70% on Ukrainian and Russian grain imports. Many African countries rely, like a lot of them, about more than half of them, rely on Russian and Ukrainian grain. That's not coming. In August, we're going to see world hunger. That's happening. There is going to be a new world hunger and Africa is going to feel it and Southeast Asia is going to feel it because they rely on Russian and Ukrainian wheat. That's one thing. Secondly, we are shifting away our attention in Eastern Europe and Europe in general from Russian gas. We're building new liquefied gas stations that are going to buy United States or your gas now. Europe is sending a lot of money. Estonia has sent one third of its military budget to Ukraine. Latvia has sent a year's worth of our military budget to Ukraine. And people are going to starve. We're going to see new 30s, basically. New 20s and 30s, just after World War I. Because what I like to compare this to is not World War II, but World War I. Uh, the effects of it. We're going to have a new lost generation. You know, Russia has been losing population ever since. They didn't even recover from kind of what happened to them in World War II, right? And now they've lost even more young men. We, we truly live in interesting times, my friend. And uh, that's not a good thing, if you know the Chinese proverb. Let me ask you one last question before we end this thing, because I'm just curious if I was a member of the Russian oligarchy, for example, and I'm looking at this and going, this was a terrible mistake by Putin. It's hurting all of the people who matter, the oligarch. If Putin went away and we can entertain all kinds of scenarios that this might happen, right? How repairable is this situation from the Russian perspective? The problem is that Putin has destroyed all institutions in this country. If Putin would die, people would not believe it for, at first. Yeah, who's a successor? If he died tomorrow, is it do they? Is it Medvedev and he's not a puppet this time? I mean, what happens? No one knows. And the thing is, if he dies, like literally no one, that, this is why I'm a proponent of the split apart theory because Russia as a whole, yeah, no one knows what to do because you've always spoken about the institutions and, and the power of them and, and that, that, that provides stability and everything. Putin has taken destruction of institutions to the next level. Russia has no legitimately working institutions. When Putin dies, anything can happen. Russia can turn into the next North Korea under Ramzan Kadyrov. Russia can go to Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, or Russia can split apart. And I believe in splitting apart part because there will be no central authority. There will be a chaos. And to be fair, it's probably going to be another civil war. We shall see blood in this century. No, something you and I have spoken about, and I've spoken about with other people too, so I try to caution myself. But they point out that even some of these opposition people, a lot of these people look good to us because they're anti-Putin and Putin doesn't like them, but we might not be very happy if these people actually got control because they're not... Does that make sense? You speak about Navalny, and I agree with you. Because a lot of... He tries to portray himself as pro-Western... He's just as much as an imperialist as Putin is, because I've seen his operation. I've spoken to his operation. I've been to his operation. He wants to do the same as Putin has done, except with the Western mantle. 
he speaks about honesty and everything, yet he openly supported Russia's invasion in Georgia in 2008. He also said that we just can't return Crimea, it's not a sandwich. And he's very authoritarian in, inside the Russian opposition system. He has refused to work with other Russian oppositionaries. There is no panacea. The institutions are so weak that we shouldn't look to a single leader. We should look to a Russia if it is to remain Russia, which I highly doubt. If Russia remains Russia in one piece, then nothing will change and we'll have a World War II soon. The thing is that Russia is a colonial empire, and you might disagree with me here, but this is my opinion and my show, so I can tell this. I believe Russia is a colonial empire just like the British Empire was. And there are republics in Russia where 90% of the population are not Russian. And they their resources are being extracted. Like, the people who gather uranium or, or oil or anything in Russia... Yeah, they don't get paid jack shit. We're going to see another Bolshevik uprising even, maybe. Because there are people currently in Russia who are calling for that Bolshevik uprising. I have no predictions because I have no predictions to make. If we are sane people and we want to, the world to move forward, we're going to have to accept what's going to end up with this war and that this war truly has changed all of us. So there's a case to be made that if Russia were to become a magical democracy overnight, right, where the will of the Russian people actually translated into policy, one might make a case based on what you just said, that even democratic politicians putting their finger in the wind to try to, you know, sense the, the mood of the electorate would sense that the mood of the electorate was not to give up Crimea and that the mood of the electorate was not to let Ukraine. In other words, if Russia magically becomes a, a, an entity where the will of the Russian people dictates policy, is the policy significantly different than what we see now? It's hard to talk about this because, honestly speaking, if you've driven your country to the point where there are old ladies yelling against people who install internet, there's a famous video on the internet where in, in a small Russian town, a Russian lady yells, we don't need your internet. Internet connection is made by Americans. Americans are evil and we should kill all of them. Literally. I don't know what to do with them. That, that requires years of work. Alexander Zinzorov stated that just like Nazi supporters were taken to concentration camps after the war to show them the atrocities and to maybe change their minds and that, that shock changed them, maybe after the war, the Russian supporters who are like super hardline, I don't know, Putinoids or whatever, how you, how you would call them, maybe they should be taken to Mariupol. But I have no real solutions and that scares me. That scares me the most. Because if I had clear, good solutions to these problems, you know, oh, well, this is going to happen and this is going to be great, I would tell them. I don't have them. But yeah, let's wrap this up. And I want to end this on a positive note. Hey, man, if you're on my show, maybe you can like uh, give a nice little aid thing because we are going to offer all Patreon subscriptions from this show to... If you don't want to support Ukrainian army, it's going to go to basically civilian aid. It's going to go to the people that can buy food. Dan, if you have some encouraging words, because this has been a very depressing conversation for me. Well, like I said, the only encouraging words here is that if you are living in a country that sees the Russian uh, uh, expansion as a real and dangerous threat, I think you just got safer. Once we get out of this mess, I mean, I think that the odds for nuclear war and everything are higher than normal while we're in this mess. But I think afterwards, I don't think the Baltics, for example, are going to be as ignored. The whole world has awakened to the fact now uh, of this threat. Putin is never going to have the same sort of international cachet and trust that he had the day before the invasion. I think if I were a Latvian, 
or an Estonian, I would consider this a positive development because now the mask is off the, that man and everybody sees him for what he is, which is much more like what people in the Baltics thought he was. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And thank you for your support. I mean, I'm sorry to be telling you this, but I've been telling you about him a long while. Oh, I've never, I, and I never, I never said he was a good guy. Like I said, I had a conversation with Lex Friedman where I was trying to say, you know, um, what about this guy? I mean, I don't think I was blind to the threat, but like everyone, I'm shocked that he went in on the ground like he did in Ukraine. I said within about 24 hours of the thing that I think this was a mistake. It's been proven to be one of these military affairs that we're going to study and it's going to change the way we do military uh, conflict. You know, I, I still argue with people that suggest that this is Putin who's crazy like a fox or that he's going to end up with with the uh, energy reserves in the east. Or To me, this looks like a blatant mistake. And if you're if you're someone threatened by Russia, having Russia make a giant military mistake is probably in your interest unless you happen to be Ukrainian and you're caught up in all this. Well, then uh, the thing you should learn is that if you greet a Ukrainian person, say Slava Ukraina, and then the response is Geroim Slava. It's a World War II saying, which they used to defend against the Nazis. Anyway, it's very late for me right now. And we thankfully have avoided all air raid sirens. The only ones happened when I was leaving the presidential office. Thanks for being here, Dan. And uh, really means a lot to me since, to be honest, I truly view you as my mentor. And uh, it's only because of you I'm here. So. Oh, stop. I Listen, first of all, I'm happy to do this. You're doing great work. I'm worried about your safety, but then you're just taking the same risk all those people stuck in the war zone are taking as well. Uh, look after yourself, my friend, and, lo and look after your, your, uh, your, your trusty sidekick at the same time. Hi, Will. Uh, let's end this now, otherwise we'll talk for another three hours. До свидания, And remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. 